in your Bibles to the book of Genesis this morning as we return uh, for our long hiatus from this wonderful book, and I trust we'll be blessed in our study of it. I'm excited to be back to Genesis with you. We're going to be uh, in Genesis, starting in Genesis 30, verse 25 this morning, and uh, if you want to use the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 24. I will tell you, we're doing about 40 verses this morning. We have to do a lot of verses uh, in the book of Genesis. We're going to go verse by verse, okay? You're going to be helped to follow along with this sermon if you have God's word open in your lap. So we're going back to it, back to it over and over again. So let me encourage you to open God's word. I also read this week, while you're finding your way to Genesis, I don't know if you got our Wednesday email. We send out an email every Wednesday. Uh, the word on the street is that it's Pastor Appreciation Month, which to be perfectly honest, as a pastor, I find ridiculous, okay? Maybe a pastor appreciation half hour might be more appropriate, but a whole month seems a little extreme uh, to me. But nevertheless, it being pastor appreciation month, this pastor will tell you right now how you can best appreciate me. I'm going to read a portion of scripture, and then I'm going to pray. When I'm finished praying, I will end my prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, and then I will say, amen. My Lord taught me to pray that way. That's how I'm going to pray. You could appreciate me well by after I say amen, you say amen in a way that I can hear you, okay? We all got that straight? So you could save yourself a postage stamp if you like. You could just say amen, and uh, we will all uh, be delighted, I trust. Now, I mentioned we've got a lot of verses to cover. I'm just, I'll, I'll cover it all in the sermon, but let me just read a selection for us as we come now to God's word. We'll be in Genesis, I'm going to read to you Genesis 31, uh, beginning in verse 4 through verse uh, 16. Genesis 31, beginning in verse 4. Hear now the word of God. Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted, and if he said the stripes shall be your wages, then all the flock bore stripes. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Our father, we are thankful for your word this morning, that we might consider it, we might meditate upon it. We believe, Father, that your rules 
your instruction, your word is true. We believe that they are, all of your scripture, including the scripture we consider this morning, are righteous altogether. We believe that the book that's in our lap is more worthy than gold and is sweeter than honey. So we pray even now that you would help us to rightly value the Bible and the preaching of it and that we would rightly taste its sweetness. Even as we ask you to let the meditations of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, our dear God, our rock and our redeemer. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 It was in 1853 when a 19-year-old Englishman received a very strange invitation to preach a sermon in London. You probably guess, once again, talking about Charles Spurgeon. That's where half my illustrations come from. Charles Spurgeon, who had a massive impact through his preaching ministry upon this world, was quite an unlikely candidate to be such a famous preacher. He's from a poor family. In fact, so poor for a time that his parents sent him to be raised by his grandparents because they simply could not afford to feed him. He had no college education, just a common education as an English villager. Though part of his education, when living with grandma, she would give him a penny for every hymn he would memorize. So that's why I imagine it is hard for you to read a sermon by Spurgeon without him quoting at least one hymn, if not many, because they were hidden in his heart under the tutelage of his grandma. Well, this young man at age 17 decided to preach his first sermon and did so in a barn to a handful of people. Within two years, by age 19, 400 people were gathering in that barn every Sunday to hear Charles Spurgeon preach, at which time he received an invitation to come to a well-known church in London, New Park Street Chapel. This had once been a very prominent church, has a sanctuary that could hold a thousand but it had dwindled down to about a couple dozen gathering on Sunday morning worship. Spurgeon thought it was a mistake. He's heard of this church. Clearly, they can't want me to come preach. He declined, but they asked him again and persisted. His father, who happened to be a bivocational pastor himself, said, you shouldn't do it. It's a terrible idea. But Spurgeon agreed despite his father's instruction. He arrived And the account of his arrival in London, this country English boy, was that his clothes didn't fit, his hair wouldn't lie down obediently, and he stood out very much in the sophisticated London environment in which he found himself. There was a teenage girl in uh, in attendance that Sunday morning when he came and gave his first sermon. She would write in her diary uh, that Spurgeon's appearance was distracting. She she writes, I quote from her diary, uh, the guest preacher who was just a boy had long, badly trimmed hair, an oversized black satin coat, and his mismatched blue handkerchief with white spots, which he graphically described as an illustration in his sermon, called all the more attention to it, which awakened in me feelings of amusement. Her name, by the way, is 
was Susanna, and she would shortly become his wife. And I don't know, maybe if she helped him pick out his handkerchiefs after then. But he must have done all right, Spurgeon, the 19-year-old boy, preaching. Despite his appearance, he was invited back, and then back, and then back. And soon began to preach there every Sunday. And within two years, the church that held 1,000 was filled to capacity. And they were sending, every Sunday, hundreds of people away who could not get in the building. They would go on to build the Metropolitan Tabernacle with a sanctuary there in the 1850s, holding 5,000 people where Spurgeon would preach every Sunday for the next 30 Five years. The Apostle Paul says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which are strong. We might add, in light of the passage in front of us, that he has chosen the wicked things of the world to receive grace. Welcome back uh, to the book of Genesis. We're picking right up in the middle here of the life of Jacob. Some of you remember it was uh, in March of 2020 that we were moving right along to studying Jacob's life. A little thing called COVID hit, right? We shut down the church, and then for a couple months, I'm preaching to a camera in the back of the wall. It was all weird and awkward, and we just, just we decided we need to move in a different direction, knowing one day, God willing, we'll come back to our study of Gen- uh, Genesis. If you're interested, I have uh, preached 43 sermons leading up to this point in Genesis. You can find those online. Um, You you probably don't want to, but they're there in case you do. You might be helped, however, to listen to the six previous sermons I have done on Jacob, starting in Genesis 25. I really wish the sermon I'm preaching today really feeds off those previous six. And so we're going to miss something, but I I trust God will work through that. It might be helpful, even as we kind of jump right in the middle of this book, just to get a quick review of the book of Genesis that brings us up to chapter 30. We start in Genesis 1, and we read, of course, in the beginning, God. Right? That's the fundamental uh, foundation of the Christian belief that before anything, there was a God. He existed. This God created everything that exists. He created this world, the cosmos, everything. He put life upon it, including human beings, which bear his image. The pinnacle of creation, we are his image bearers. We are like God, the Bible says. We bear, in the Latin, the imago dei. We have the image of God in us. And then God, in putting humans on this planet, in his image, says, Now, since you're my image, you go and live like me. Namely, have dominion over this world, rule like I would rule, and fill it, right? Spread the image, my image, all over this world. So that was the stated goal, but our, our, our first parents, the first humans, decided they didn't like that goal, right? And so they decided, Adam and Eve, decided to rebel against God. They think, uh, well, we have a choice. We can follow God, we follow Satan. Let's go with Satan, right? And they committed treason against their maker, and the process, every human born to them, which is every human, first human, has a propensity towards sin and wickedness to become evil. Right? And now we, we're living in the midst of it. Why is there trouble in this world? Why, why is this place all messed up? Why are we having all these difficulties? It's because of sin. That's the answer. That's what the Bible tells us. In fact, I always say Christianity is the only uh, worldview that is able to actually describe why we are in the place in which we are. And so we, we continue to choose to belittle the all-powerful, all-wise, all-glorious, all-knowing, right, all-good maker of everything because we, as a people, think we know better than him. I mean, that is happening moment by moment, every single day, in human hearts around this world. And because of that, we see in the book of Genesis, the world is plunged into darkness. There's violence and 
sin and wickedness and rebellion and spiritual deadness. Humans became God's enemy and the subject of God's judgment. And we see that in the book of Genesis. God would, the world was so bad, it was so evil that God would flood the entire world. And in the process, killing every single person upon the earth except for eight people. And then, again, we've gathered together in, in rebellion against God, so we're going to exalt ourselves. And God would have to then, in judgment, scatter the human race all over this world in the Tower of Babel. And so that brings us up to Genesis 11. That's called, sometimes called primeval Genesis. And there's a transition when we get to Genesis 12, where we begin what we might call patriarchal Genesis. That God finds this man named Abram, a pagan, a moon worshiper. And he says, Abram, I choose you. And I will use you, Genesis 12, 3, that through you and your seed, all the families on the earth shall be blessed. Right? Ben read for us Galatians, by the way, and Paul refers to that verse and says, God preached the gospel in that verse. That verse, Genesis 12, 3, one of the most important verses in the book of Genesis, is the gospel in its kernel form, in its seed form. And we need to read the rest of the book of Genesis, indeed the rest of the Bible, through the lens of Genesis 12, 3. I will bless you, I will bless the world through you and your seed. And the seed, in some sense, became a nation called Israel. We'll see in our study of Genesis. But ultimately, the son of Abraham is, the seed of Abraham is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the rest of the book of Genesis, from Genesis 12 on, we see God preserving this lineage against incredible odds, against incredible rebellion, in order that he might bring us to the Messiah. And in that preservation of the lineage, God continues to make these crazy choices. He continues to choose people that we would not choose, that God is just sovereignly choosing this one over this one. And so Abraham will have two sons, one named Ishmael and another named Isaac. And God will not choose Ishmael, his firstborn, but will choose Isaac. Ishmael was the process of human cunning and craftiness. Isaac was, was a miracle birth from a woman who could not bear children and a man who could not uh, bear children. And is a miracle child, which will get us ready for another miracle child who's to come. And then Isaac would have two sons, one named Esau, the firstborn, and, a, and another named Jacob. And Esau should be the heir of the promise, but God once again chooses the secondborn. And by the way, it's just not the secondborn. The secondborn in this case, Jacob, is utterly despicable. He's a liar, he's a grasper, he's a deceiver, he's a, he's a dishonorer. I, I, if you were to create a list of the least likely people in the Bible, Jacob has got to be on your short list. I mean, you got the devil, you got Judas, and then maybe Jacob. I mean, he is incredibly unlikable, and yet God chooses him. Isn't that stunning? God likes to choose losers, like you, right? And me. You think God chose him? Yeah. Jacob, who swindles his brother out of his birthright? Right? His brother's kind of a bit of a dunce, by the way, so it's kind of easy to do when he does it, right? He lies to his blind old father and steals a blessing. And then rather than face up to the consequences of the turmoil which he has brought into his family, he runs away like a coward. I'm out of here. And while on the run, you know what God does? He shows up to him and gives him promises. You see that in Genesis 28. 
We'll need to know Genesis 28 to know the story of Jacob. My plan is to do seven more sermons in Jacob, so you will need to know this. So just turn back to Genesis 28. Jacob on the run after he has destroyed his family. Okay. Genesis 28, this is what happens at Bethel. We keep going back to Bethel in the book of Genesis. You'll need to know Bethel. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. The promise of land, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. Right? A promise of uh, prosperity, just like he promised Abraham. And here it is, and in you and your offspring, your seed, that's by the way singular if you want to, your seed singular, okay, he will do what? I shall bless all the families of the earth, which is, which is you. Right? He blessed you through the seed of Jacob. God promises Jacob. That will be the backdrop of the rest of his life. And so Jacob gets this promise. He ends up in Haran. He, he sees this girl that he really likes, right? He runs up. Her name's Rachel. He runs up, kisses her, and then starts crying, Right? Like the mama's boy he is, okay? You know, Jacob in his skinny jeans, pulling up in his Mini Cooper, runs up and uh, turns off Taylor Swift and kisses the girl, starts weeping, and then he says, oh, by the way, my name's Jacob. What's your name, okay? And, and he is so infatuated with this woman. This woman is his idol. And he says, I'll work seven years for free for her. And da- the Laban, her, her dad says, that's a good idea. And, and they get married, and they would do the old switcheroo, right? And in, it, out goes Rachel, in comes her her uh, less attractive sister, Leah, and Jacob wakes up in the morning, the Bible, I'm quoting the Bible here, and behold, it was Leah, right? He is stunned by that. He says, what about Rachel? Laban says, give me seven more years, I'll give you her too. He says, okay, I'll do it. He gets both wives. Now he's got one wife, he's got two wives, and for good measure in, the, in Genesis chapter 30, he picks up another, a girlfriend, and then another girlfriend, ends up with 12 kids, I think that's a very awkward Christmas card, by the way. I don't know how you do that. Okay, and no one likes each other. The sisters don't like each other. The brothers don't like each other. And Jacob is totally oblivious. All he's interested in doing, to be perfectly honest, is to lie with any woman that comes into his tent. And so this is the family that God says, I'm going to bless the world through you. That is stunning to me. In fact, For every time God is called the God of Abraham, he is called the God of Jacob twice. He is the God of the deceiver, the God of the grasper, the God of the sinner. Because why? Because he is a God of grace. Praise God. Because we, like Jacob, need grace. We need grace. So here we are, now in our story. And what we see here is for the first time in Jacob's life, he is beginning to follow God. The deceiver is honest, the arrogant is humble, the self-sufficient gives God the credit, the neglectful husband begins to lead his family. He's going to show, he's going to show us, believe it or not, what Jacob will show us what it's like to live with God and obey God. That's stunning. But be first, let's just consider an example. What does it look like to live without God? Enter Laban. Okay? Point number one, living without God. Verse 25 of chapter 30. 
As soon as Rachel had born uh, Joseph, that's his 12th, son, 12th child, 11 boys, one girl, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my home country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have uh, served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given to you. He wants to go home. I've been here for years and years. It's time for me to return my, to my family. But notice how he talks to this man, his father-in-law, okay? Send me away. Give me my wives. Give me my children. He doesn't show up to Laban and say, okay, hey, uh, dad, uh, um, I'm, I'm leaving. We're going to pack up. I think we're moving. I'm going to go back to my, my, my land. He says, hey, will you give me my wives, please? You ever say that to your father? Many say that to your father-in-law. Will you please give me my children? They're his children. Why is he asking Laban for his wives and his children? Well, what you will see is that Laban has total control over this man. It's almost as if he's enslaved. And so Laban hears this, and he's not so sure about this, as you see in verse 27. But Laban said to him, I have, I, if I have found uh, favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So Laban says, wait a second, you're kind of good for business. And I know you're good for business because uh, God is blessing, uh, blessing me through you. Now, how did he learn that? He learned that by divination, right? So grandpa has some kind of medium where he's talking to demons, right? Jacob's boss is talking to demons. Maybe you have a boss like that. You say, my boss talks, talks to demons, right? Okay, you're working for Laban. Okay, that's what's going on here. He says, I learned from these demons that, uh, that God is blessing you, which you would think would make him want to, to then say, well, tell me about this God who blesses you. But he doesn't care about that at all. All he cares is about the money. And so he comes with a counteroffer. Verse 28, let's negotiate. Name your wages and I will give it to you. Right, you want to leave? How about a raise instead? Okay. How, how about you actually paid him for his work, right? But he says, okay, well, I'll start paying you now. Well, Jacob's not a fool. Okay? I mean, Jacob has a lot of bad characteristics. Foolishness is not one of them. You remember the last time Laban said, name your wages, okay? He ended up working 14 years for two angry girls, okay? And so he says, okay, well, wait a second. Name my wages. He comes and he has a very interesting proposal. Verse 29, Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me, right? Your business is booming. Why? Because God has blessed my work. Verse 30, for you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you, right? The Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. Okay, but now when shall I provide for my own household also? So Jacob, I just want to note this here. This is the first time he will ever do this from Genesis 25 all the way here to Genesis 30. First time he'll ever give God credit. First time he'll ever talk to anybody about God. And here he is. He's growing up a little bit. And he's saying, listen, uh, you know how God has, has blessed you through me. He's testified, testifying to God. But then he says, you see that in the end of verse 30? But I need to take care of my own family. Right? I need, I need to provide for my own people. Jacob has a lot of mouths to feed, right? 17 mouths, by the way. That's a lot to feed. And what you see here is, is Jacob is, is, I think, growing up. He's, he's a husband, he's a father, and he says, I have a responsibility to provide for my family. And this job is not cutting it. I need to make more money. And there's a maturity here, right? He's being responsible for his own. We haven't seen that before. He's glorifying God. We haven't seen that before. He's standing up to Laban a little bit. We haven't seen that before. He's, he's grown up. A little responsibility is helping him. 
You've heard it said, I trust, that men are like trucks, right? We are designed to carry loads, okay? You put a load on a man, you put responsibility on a man, and they begin to drive straight, right? We, we, we see that in Jacob's life. I mean, how many, how many men raised in a Christian home, they get into their 20s, and off they go to the foreign land, right? And the, the wildlife, and then they have some kids, and they say, well, my kids are starting to act like me, and that's no good, right? So let's go back to church. I mean, how many times has that happened? Seems like that's happening here. This is, we call this sanctification. He's growing in godliness. He's becoming a more godly man. He's maturing. Aren't you, by the way, aren't you glad you are not the person you once were? Amen? Yeah, God changes us. He could change Jacob. So he says, Laban says, okay, all right, now we're talking. What, what do you want? Verse 31, he said, what shall I give you? Let's negotiate. So, <laughs> right? This is, by the way, just to remind you, this is grandpa negotiating with his son-in-law so his son-in-law has enough money to feed grandpa's grandchildren. That's the kind of man Laban is. So Laban sa- uh, Jacob says, okay, here's the arrangement. How about this? Uh, Jacob said, verse 31, you shall not give me anything if you do this for me. He says, I don't, I don't need anything, just this one thing. I will again pasture your flock and keep it, keep working for you. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. Okay? So he says, listen, I'll keep tearing for your flock, but I need my own flock on, on the side. So Jacob's getting a side hustle, okay? He's becoming an Uber driver. He says, I'll, I'll keep working for you, but I'll do this. I got this work over here. Give me the rare black sheep. Give me the rare spotted goats. There's no trick here, no deceiving, no cunning, no manipulation like Jacob usually does. He's not trying to defraud him. In fact, he points this out, verse 33, so my honesty will answer for me later, right? You can tell they have problems, don't they? So listen, this way you know I'm being honest. You can come and look into my wages uh, with you, and everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if it is found with me, shall be counted stolen. Okay, right? It would be obvious to everyone who owns what here. You can't put a sheep on a goat, okay? That's not going to work. We can't deceive each other this way. So what I understand in reading the commentaries, this is extremely generous of Jacob to do. And evidently um, so, somewhat stupid because Laban really likes this idea. Verse 34, Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. Yes, I, I like this. Let's, let's shake on it. Let's grab each other's inner thigh, whatever they did back then, right? And let's sign this contract. Let's get this done. Yes, deal. He closes the deal right there. You can see J- Laban walking away with a smile on his face. Maybe a chuckle, maybe begin to roar with laughter. One pastor says, this is like you're working at a Chevy dealership and your boss is ripping you off, right? And he's not paying you. And you say to your boss, okay, uh, uh, I'm out of here. He says, wait a second, you're good for business. Stay around, name your wages. And you say, listen, every Chevy I sell, you get the profit. But how about every Ford I sell, I get the profit. And your boss says, well, that's great because we're a Chevy dealership. I like that idea a lot. And uh, that works. Deal. I mean, that's what's going on here. I just think this is great. I, I, I want you to notice how honest Jacob is. Jacob's being honest, right? I want to give credit what credit's due. He's being generous, right? He wants to provide for Laban's daughters and grandchildren. All this is good and noble. And once again, Laban rips him off. You see in verse 35. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons, and set 
uh, and he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So all of a sudden, Jacob goes out to the flock, and the black lambs are gone. Where are the black lambs? They were here yesterday. Right? Where, where, are the stripe, where are the striped spotted goats? They were here yesterday. Right? It's like the boss says, okay, well, we'll send all the Fords to three dealerships over, you know, three counties over. All of a sudden, there's no used Fords for you to sell. You see the principle here. So this is an example of what it looks like to live without God. You've got to live for something. What does Laban live for? He lives for money. Certainly doesn't live for his family. Seems like he will run over anyone to get more money. He, he, doesn't, he never comes to Jacob and says, listen, don't, don't leave. We're family. I mean, I'm your father-in-law. If I wronged you, let's make amends. Let's work this out. Instead, he says, don't leave. It's bad for my business. Right? That's the spirit of Laban. He will, he will use people because he loves money. The biblical principle is opposite. We love people and use money, right? Money is not what we love. We love people, and we use money. We live generously because we love people. Jacob says, I love my family, and I'll use money to take care of them. Laban says, I love money, and I will use my family to get more of it. And I'll tell you, if you live a life without God, you're going to have to find another purpose to live for. You will. Every one of us will live for something. Every one of us will, will have some ambition, some purpose, some goal, some what the Bible calls an idol. It might not be money for others. It might be possessions, education. It might be your GPA. It might be your accomplishment. It might be your job title. It might be your beauty. It might be your dress size. It might be your, your, your bench press. I don't know what it is, but you're going to live for something, and that thing will give you comfort. That will give you peace. That will give you your security. That will give you your hope. That will give you your identity. The Bible calls that worship. Everyone worships something. Laban worships money. He thinks about money, sacrifices for money, he, he, he praises money, right? He'll do anything for money. It reminds me of the rich young ruler. Remember him? He comes to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, obey all the commandments. He says, oh yeah, I did that since childhood, right? Check, got that done. And Jesus says, okay, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and come follow me. That didn't work out so well. Jesus, in a sense, saying, one thing you lack, and it's me. And money is keeping you from me. Don't you see that? And this man comes to him with his hands full of money, and Jesus reaches out and says, just grab my hand and let's go. But he can't let go of money. And he walks away from the very one who would give him abundant life, the very one who would give him eternal life upon a new heaven and a new earth, because he can't let go of his idol. And all of us have these struggles in our heart. It's just not Laban. It's just not the rich young ruler. We have things in our lives that compete for our allegiance with God. So may I remind you, may this just be a stark example to us. That what we gain in Christ far exceeds anything he ever asks us to give. That nothing is compared to the love of Christ. Nothing is compared to being adopted into his family. That he is worth leaving everything for. That he is a treasure beyond compare. He is our reason for living. So I ask you, is there anything you're living for other than Jesus? Is there anything, if God took away today, anything in your life, any relationship in your life, if God took that away, you would conclude, my life is not worth living. If there is, that is an idol. That has become your identity, your hope, 
your security, your meaning in life. May God grant you to see how much more, how, however great that good thing is, how much more Jesus is in you. As Laban shows us, a life without God. Well, Jacob, as I said, is, is doing pretty well. And he begins to show us what it likes, to contrary, what it's like to live with God. And uh, he does so in a very strange portion of scripture as we turn to verse 37. And point number two, living with God. Then Jacob took fresh sticks, a poplar, and almond, and plane trees, and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink, and since they bred when they came to drink. And so <laughs> Jacob has this very interesting breeding strategy, and it's the idea that the sheep and the goats, if they mate while they look at peeled branches, that looking at the peeled branches will influence the coloring of their offspring. Okay? It seems like the strategy evolves. If you look down to verse 41, whenever the stronger the flock was breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs for the eyes of the flock that uh, they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would lay, or would be Laban's, and the stronger would be Jacob's. And so he's, he's identifying, um, uh, breeding the more energetic animals. And of course, uh, we, we can look, look see what, what, what happens as a result. Uh, well, not as a result, I should add. So strike that. You see what happens, not as a result of this silliness. Verse 39, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black uh, in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart, and he did not put them with Laban's flock. And so you see what happens. He has this massive flock now of black sheep and spotted goats to the point where he has gone from very poor to exceedingly rich, as you see in verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, and camels and donkeys, okay? And yeah, I don't know if you have servants. He has multiple servants and donkeys, okay? So he's very, very wealthy. He's got camels. Things are going well. And people read this and they say, look, just more evidence the Bible is so incredibly primitive. The Bible is the Bible teaching that the visual stimuli of of farm animals will influence their offspring, okay? So let me just be very clear. No, the Bible is not teaching that. The Bible is not primitive. However, Jacob clearly is, okay? But we actually see the, how, why these animals are produced. And it's not because of the stimuli. You, you might remember earlier in Genesis 30, um, the, the wives are having this baby battle, like who's going to have more babies and I need babies. And, and, and little Reuben is playing with mandrakes and in comes Rachel and says, give me those mandrakes. And she, she says to Leah, what, what's going to cost me to get your son's mandrakes? And, and Leah says, well, I want a night uh, with, with hubby. And, and she says, okay, you can, right? And this is the mandrakes are going to, the mandrakes don't produce children in her, right? And so we see this happening, these very silly ideas as to what will produce the, the type of fertility. But the Bible is clear that it is God that opened Rachel's womb. And it is clear that God has produced these particular, these animals. And it's clear in chapter 31. So we need to look over here as Jacob, we're going to see this in a moment, but Jacob is going to gather his wives together. And he explains to them how it is that he ended up with these animals, okay? And it's not about the sticks. Look in verse 10. 
in the breeding season, Genesis 31.10, in the breeding season of all the flocks, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flocks were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. See, this has nothing to do with the sticks. It has nothing to do with Jacob's schemes. This is God, God showed him in a dream, I'm doing this. I've seen how Laban's treating you, and I will bless you. Right? So Genesis 30 is really God's blessing. He blesses him with children early in the chapter, and now with prosperity, because he promised he promised to provide for Jacob. He promised to bless Jacob. And so he kept that promise. Right? Laban's trying to cheat him, but Jacob is nevertheless blessed. Do you see that? Right? Laban's doing the best to steal from him, and yet God says, I'm going to bless you, and does so without Jacob deceiving anyone, with no schemes, with no manipulation, with no lies. Jacob is the, the blessing stealer. Every blessing he sees, he's quick to steal and, and says, I need to get it and I'm going to steal to get it. And it's at this point we actually find him saying, okay, I'm not going to do any of this manipulation. He just trusts the Lord and he acknowledges to his wives that the help has come from the Lord. God has given this to me. God has kept his promises. I don't need to scheme and manipulate. You need to understand that, Christian. You don't need to scheme and manipulate. You don't need to cheat on your taxes. You don't need to, to, to lie to your customers, right? You, you don't need to do this trick or, or that trick over there. Just trust God. He has promised to take care of you. Let God be the one who blesses you, right? Let, let God be your defense. Let him be your rock and your refuge. And so Laban begins to, uh, excuse me, Jacob begins to live with God, and we see God pours out his blessing upon him. And as he's living with God, you see, this was going to lead to obedience in Jacob's life. So he not only shows us just a beautiful picture of what it looks to live with God, but he shows us what it's like to actually obey God. So he goes from this passive trust to this active obedience. So consider thirdly that we see what it's like to live to obey God. Right, so we pick up the story, Genesis 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of, La sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. Right? Jacob's company's booming, and Laban's sons, his brother-in-laws, his brother they're not happy about this. Right? But they're, they, they, they hate Jacob for it. Right? Like father, like sons. A greedy dad makes greedy boys. That's what we see here. So Jacob, of course, has obeyed the... The agreement prospered legitimately, but uh, jealousy is, is rarely rational. And the father-in-law is not pleased either. See verse 2, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So uh, the, the arrangement didn't work out as Laban had hoped. Things are getting a little uncomfortable here, right? It's getting difficult. No one likes me anymore. No one thinks I'm good for business anymore. And it's at that time God speaks to him. Now, it's been 20 years since Jacob's heard from God. Doesn't talk to him every day. Don't think that. It's been 20 years. God speaks to him, provides clear direction. It's time to leave. You're to come back to the land of promise, like I said, at Bethel. Right? I'm going to give you that land. Come back to that land. And now Jacob knows 
what he must do. Because look, Jacob's how is Jacob being guided? Notice he's being guided in three ways. He's being guided by his desires, he's being guided by the circumstances, and he's being guided by God's word. And I, I think there's a principle here. I think sometimes God allows life to sour on us so that we become more open to listening to him. I wonder if Jacob would have been open to this call to return if everything was great in Haran. But God in grace is making things a little difficult. Right? It's getting a little tight around here in order to make obedience easier to him. Remember in Acts, God says, listen, I want you to make disciples of the ends of the earth. Right? Go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. Where do they go? Jerusalem. Right? They go to Jerusalem and they just settle down there. Right? Because they own houses in Jerusalem. Their favorite restaurants are in Jerusalem. Their kids go to school in Jerusalem. Right? They're settling there. And God says, no, I, said, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. So we get to Acts 8. And he sends, allows, I should say, perhaps persecution to come upon the church. The church is finally scattered, where? To the ends of the earth, right? God, God will make things difficult in order for us to, to begin to listen to him. He closes doors, opens other doors. He's here leaving really no option, right? And so Jacob has this, this guidance. Now let me say, uh, you want to, so many people, I've asked this question. Maybe you've asked this question. So many people ask this question. How do I know God's will for my life? I think, there, there's, I think this is a helpful passage. You, you can, I think you are helped to discern God's will for your life through three, through observing three realities. One, the desires of your heart. What do you want to do? I think that's helpful. What does Jacob want to do? He wants to go back home, chapter 30, verse 25. Number two, the circumstances of your life. Right? Where, where, where are the circumstances pointing? And number three, God's instruction. Right? Desire circumstances in the word of God. Jacob wants to go home. The circumstances show him it's a good idea. God confirms that with his word. Now, we, God doesn't speak to us like he speaks to Jacob, but we do have the very word of God. Arthur Pink, uh, the author who has helped me see this, is helpful when he says, when you are seeking divine guidance, first you uh, look for a definite conviction in your heart that God desires us to do a certain thing. That's the desire. Second, the path he should, uh, that he would have us take being indicated by outward circumstances which make it humanly possible or expedient, we should do it. And then third, after waiting on God for it, a word from Scripture, which is suited to our case, and by which the Spirit brings to our notice, is plainly a message of God to us. Thus may we be assured of God's will for us. So let me show you what this looks like in the life of George Whitfield. 1737, George Whitfield is preaching all over England. His, his ministry is energetic. Crowds are, thousands of people are flocking to hear him preach in the fields. And he decides at this point, 1737, I'm going to leave England to the backwater of the colony of Georgia. Right? Georgia, barely, 1737, barely a populated wilderness. He wants to go there because his friend John Wesley had gone to Georgia, explained to him the need that was in Georgia for gospel ministry. He spent too much praying, sought the counsel of the Lord, sought the counsel from his friends. He decided to go. Why? He had a desire to escape the temptation that fame was bringing in his life. The circumstances showed him the ministry needs in Georgia were great. And the word of God pulled him as he considered Christ's commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, which evidently was Georgia in 1737. And so the day came to set sail. The, the, the dock was flooded with people. Many of them begging him not to go. Many of them offering him 
monetary incentive to stay. And Whitfield would pray, God, give me a deep hum uh, humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye. Uh, Jacob, here, compelled by desire, circumstances, and the word of God to go. It's time to leave. But now here's the problem, isn't it? You can see the problem. How do you leave this man Laban when you have two wives, two girlfriends, 12 children, plus camels and donkeys and sheep and goats and male servants and female servants, right? How do you get away? Because if you announce that you're leaving, Laban might, no, you're not leaving. He might forbid it. Laban might raise up his militia, which he will do in chapter 31, and take everything from you, including your wives and your children, and then send you on your way with nothing. So how is he going to do this? Well, he decides he needs to do it discreetly. So Jacob calls a family meeting. See that in verse 4. So Jacob set, sent and called for Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. So what does he do? He's making his case to his wives. Notice he doesn't dictate to them. He doesn't say, this is what we're doing. He doesn't say, I'm in charge. He wants them to willingly go with him. That's a good husband, right? He's explaining to them, this is what's happening. Grandpa, your dad, he doesn't like us anymore. He doesn't like me anymore, at least, right? He's, he's, in fact, he's kind of a jerk. You kind of see that. Right? But God's been good to us. Look what he says to us. I love this. Verse, end of verse 5. But the God of my father has been with me. He's for the first time ever that we know of testifying to God to his wives. He says, we, you see what God is doing. And then he moves on to Laban's dishonesty. Your dad's dishonesty. Verse 6. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. So it's like, listen, I've worked hard. I've been honest. I've been good to your dad. But look what's happened. Verse 7. Uh, yet your father has cheated me. And change my wages ten times? Right? You know why our kids are so skinny? Because grandpa keeps ripping us off. Okay? But God's protected us. Once again, he goes back to God. End of verse 7. He says, but God did not permit him to harm us. He wants his wives to know God is, is, is faithful. God's worthy of their trust. God's blessing us. Right? Verse 8. He says, if he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the, the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Right? God is, God, I'm not cheating your dad. God is taking away his wealth. God's giving me back the wages. And then he explains this vision he had, this dream he had from God. Verses 10 to 12, we already consider. And then finally he comes, end of meaning is a decision to make. Verse 13. And he tells them of God's appearance to him at Bethel. Remember we saw that, verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow. Now rise, go from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Right? I, wor I worship God in Bethel, built an altar to God, and made a vow. He said he's going to care for me. He said he's going to be, uh, he'll be my God if he, if, if he takes care of me. He's taking care of me. And so he says, we, we need to leave. Notice how many times he testifies to God's faithfulness. In verses 4 through 16, God is mentioned seven times. Three times, God has blessed them. And he concludes, as a family, we need to obey God. In this crisis, that we, we are in crisis. And we need to trust and follow God. Now, there, there's, this, there's the pitch. A lot now, right? Everything depends upon how his wives respond. Because right? they run back to daddy. Say, this is what he said. What are they going to do? 
haven't, hasn't been going so well. Look what we see in verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Right? They don't think too highly of their father either. I think finally, maybe this is the first time they begin to see their dad for who he actually is, not the man they wish he was. Right? I, think, I think many, many people have walked that path. You grow up thinking your dad is a hero, and the older you get, clearer, clearer the picture gets. Your dad's not much of a hero in this case. Dad's a selfish jerk in this case, right? And you notice this question? He says, is there any, any inheritance? Do we have any inheritance with him? In other words, does, okay, question. Does dad love us? Let's follow the money. His dad has a huge estate, and he's driving a new truck, right? And we're living in a single wide, uh, eating top ramen, okay? Does God, there's no inheritance. He says, we left no inheritance. Have you, listen, godly people, here's a little principle for you, according to the book of Proverbs, godly people leave inheritance. A good man, I'm quoting the Bible, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You ever see the bumper sticker, I'm spending my children's inheritance, Right? You might as well have another bumper sticker that says, I'm a fool and a sinner, okay? We, sh we are to leave an inheritance. So they look and say, we, we don't have any inheritance with him. Let's ask another question, verse 15. Are we not regarded as foreigners, he says? I mean, dad's treating us like strangers, not daughters, right? We bring him presents on his birthday. He never gives us anything on our birthday. We help him. He never comes to help, help us. We're poor, right? And yet we're always helping him get rich. I mean, dad likes the idea of daughters. He doesn't treat us like one. He likes the idea of grandchildren a lot more than the reality of grandchildren. And, and come to think of it, and this is stunning. Verse 15, he kind of sold us, didn't he? Look, are, are we not regarded as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured the money. Dad has... I mean, that's a strong statement. Dad sold us, devour, devoured the money. What money are they talking about? They're talking about the bride price, right? The bride price. In this culture, and by the way, today in many cultures, you go to Ghana, this for example, we, as we do, you, if you want to get married, you save up some money and give it to the father-in-law in order to get his daughter. Now, I, to be honest, I, I think we should, uh, as a father of five, uh, five daughters, I like this idea, okay? Um, Right? I, I think, let's, bear with me for a second. I think this is a good idea for two reasons. Okay? I think they did it for two reasons. Let me put it that way. One, it showed, that the, it showed the father that this young suitor is a hardworking young man. He's responsible. He can save money. And what does that communicate? That communicates he'll be able to provide for my daughter. He'll be able to provide for my future grandchildren. And that idea has been very helpful. I'll just talk about my family. Everyone does comes to different conclusions, and so I'm not, not pushing on you. You come to your own conclusion. But listen, if, if you are interested in dating one of my daughters, you better be responsible. You better be a responsible young man. And what I mean, what I mean by that, listen, I, this, I probably shouldn't say this, but here I go. I, I don't think dating is for children. I don't think dating is for children. I think dating is for adults. Young adults, perhaps, but not children. So if you want, you want to date one of my daughters, mommy better not be driving you up down my driveway, okay? Because mommy drives children. You better have a job. You better have a license. 
You better have a car. You better have money to pay because my daughter is not paying for her date. You better be a young man and not a child. And if mommy's still driving you, I'm sorry to tell you, you're still a child, okay? You don't have a job yet, you're still a child, right? You need to start paying for some of your own stuff, right? Tell my boys this. You want a girlfriend? That's good. That's a good desire, okay? Step one, get a job. Step two, get your license. Get a car. Start paying for some of your own stuff, and then we'll start talking. Now you're showing, okay, I'm a bit of a young man now. Okay, now we're entering and leaving childhood into young adulthood. Now we can think about dating. The idea of children dating to me, well, anyways, okay. Um, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Genesis, okay, here we go. Um, number two, why, why, why a bride price? Number two, it's an insurance policy. The father is to take that money, set it aside for the, the, the case that the husband dies, leaving the, his daughter's a widow, or, God forbid, he abandons her, and now she's undesirable of suitors. Now she has to, some money that she could live on and the grandchildren could live on. The girls come and, and, and they say, wait a second, Jacob, hu hubby, you gave dad 14 years of labor for us. You gave him literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay? Where is it? Because it looks like he spent it all on us. Dad, dad, dad doesn't love us. He just wanted a free CEO for 14 years. So dad sold us. Dad's, dad treated us like prostitutes. And he's the pimp. So, so, he can marry, so we can marry a guy so he can rip him off. And, and they begin, this begins to dawn on him, right? He doesn't respect us. He's taking advantage of us. He doesn't love us. He doesn't want us. But, but look at this. God has been faithful to us. Verse 16. This, this is the girls. This is what they're talking. It's the first time they will we'll talk like this at all. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Right? God's given us the money back that he stole from us. And so what? Now the time for the decisions come. What are they going to do? Right? What are we going to do? Last verse. We're almost there. Here we go. Now then, whatever God has said to you, you do it. And I don't think you could ask much more from that. I think that's glorious. Okay, honey, let's follow God. And I'll tell you, just you see how this is coming together. For the first time in Jacob's life, he's obeying God. And what's happening? Blessing after blessing after blessing. Right? He, first time he decides, I'm going to honor God, he leads his family. He begins to lead his wives, who at one point, up to this point, couldn't stand each other. Now they're not hating each other. They're agreeing with one another. He leads his, for the first time, he's leading. There's actually harmony in Jacob's home. We're all coming together on the same page. We're all coming together in our commitment to God. I'll tell you, let me tell you, life is so much better when you do what God tells you to do. And you are told constantly not to do that. Life is better in disobeying. That's what Adam and Eve heard. Life is better if you reject God. I'm here to tell you it's not true. God's word, God's ways are always better. Not always easier, but always better. And if you do what God has done, what God has told you to do rather, it will, it will radically transform your life. As a result, they're headed to the promised land. They're going to go to Canaan. And I, I just want to ask, listen, families, families, are you doing 
what God wants you to do. Dads, husbands, are you doing what God wants you to do? Wives, are you doing what God wants you to do? And to some degree, I think we all have to answer, kind of, right? Yeah, but maybe not as well as we want. Okay, God, just show us the blessing next time. I just want to bless you. I'm not going to bless disobedience. Begin to do what I've called you to do. I think Jacob uh, is, is I, I mean, I don't know if you see this. This, this is the story of humanity. I, I, this is the story of Adam and Eve all over. He's born in the land of promise, right? He's told to trust God and seek God, and instead he grasps for what's not his own to take. He ends up fleeing from God's presence into the foreign land, living in the worldly life, under bondage there in the world. And I think all of us, have some, in some sense, we've re- we, at one time in our life, we reject God and we end up uh, enslaved by sin until one day God calls us. Just like he shows up, Jacob says, come to me. Come home. He did that in my life. He came to me when I was 16, 17 years old. He says, Stephen, come home. He says, come to me. I wonder if there's anyone here. He's calling you right now. He says, hear him. Won't you come to me? I sent my son to this world that he might pay your penalty for sin. He might die the death that you deserve. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And now he stands with nail-pierced hands as the crucified Savior and the resurrected Lord calling to you. I want you. Won't you come to me? Won't you bow your knee to me in faith? You could do so right now. Father, we... Thank you for your word and the encouragement it is to us. It is, as we already established, far surpasses the value of gold and the sweetness of honey. It is so good. Maybe be willing to follow it. And even now, Father, uh, as we come to this table, we do so to have communion with Christ who has promised to be with us always, even to the very end of this world. So in breaking of this bread, may Christ make known to us that he is the true heavenly bread that strengthens us unto eternal life. And in the cup, may he come to us as the vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.